Hello, my lovelies. It's Andrea Edwards. Welcome to Uncommon Courage. Uncommon Courage. Today we are going to talk about self-worth and how women can regain their self-worth if they've lost it for whatever reason in their lives. And of course, I'm doing it with my buddy, my partner in crime, Kathy Johnson. Welcome, darling. Thank you, darling. Hi, I'm Kathy Johnson. Um, I'm happy to be a part of this podcast with you, Andrea. And we have three wonderful women with us today, all friends of ours, um, and people who who are bringing something, their perspective about self-worth. We've already done one podcast on this topic before, and um, this is our very second one. So I'm looking forward to it. I will just move to Avni and ask you to just introduce yourself briefly. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Kathy. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Avni Martin. I was born in Gujarat, lived in India for 14 years, and then I migrated to UK with my family, where I did my school, college, university, um, married, you know, the love of my life, an angel um, that I met at university. We have three kids, and we've been in Singapore since about 10 years. I'm now a coach and inner child integration therapist. And I run an ICF accredited coach training school where I help people become certified professional coaches internationally. So that's a little bit about myself. I didn't know about the inner child integration specialist. Cool. We're going to hear some more about that, I hope. All right. With the lovely Yasmin. All right. Well, I'm so happy to be here with everyone. So I'm actually a child psychologist by background, talking about integration specialist. And I wanted to help kids, but then I realized that I was focusing, I wanted to study and work with kids uh, who have been sexually violated and abused. And at the same time, my dad, unfortunately, passed away of cancer. And I had to realize that the, the choice of work that I do is in fact how I feel. And that was something that was, for me, quite dark. So I ended up shifting very far from that world, still working with children issues. Uh, but I do that more in the, in the environment with senior leaders as well as sales team. Because a lot of times when we're having any kind of blocks, it comes from the first seven years of when we were born. And the traumas that we feel and the one we experience. So this is a perfect timing for this conversation as well, because it's really something that I, I really care about uh, as a therapist by background and to have a chat with you and also just to share my ahas along the journey as well. Yes. And Kat. Hi, everybody. I'm Kat Benzetfin. I am an American living in Asia. I've been in Singapore for almost 18 years. I was born and raised in the States and I'm an engineer by training and I've been building stuff all my life from huge mobile networks to now, you know, building concepts in innovation sprints in the company that I work for. Nice. Kathy, do you want to give a bit of a background on you? Sure. I'm also originally from the U.S. I've lived in Singapore for 23 years. My background is in the business world, but about 14 years ago, I left the company that I was working for um, my last corporate job to do what I do now. I'm a certified professional coach. I also uh, teach a coach certification course, people who want to become certified as coaches. I'm also a facilitator of leadership programs and programs that help people to connect with who they are inside, really, to develop their own ability to step into the world in a bigger way, put it that way. And I'm also a speaker. Um, But I also... You know, as what was said in our first podcast, I also grew up as a young girl in the U.S. with a family that is Southern Baptist, living in the southern part of the U.S., which is a particular flavor that um, Kat will know about, um, others may as well. 
So I've survived that in a much bigger place. But fundamentally, I help people develop themselves so that they can be bigger in the world and have less suffering. That's sort of my focus. And Andrea. Yeah, because if some of your friends listen, they don't know me. So my name is Andrea Edwards, the digital conversationalist. My background's all marketing, communications, content marketing. But in the last sort of decade or so, I've been very much focused on helping business leaders and the employees of large global organizations become social leaders. And that's having a, a voice on an issue that they care about on social media, because I really believe that we all need to step into our voice. I think a lot of people are stepping away because they don't like what's going on there. But what that means is that we're disengaging from the global conversation and we're letting the people who divide us win. And I am going to fight until the last breath in my body to make sure that those people who are pushing us towards a dystopia do not win. So that's my mission in the world at the moment. It's keeping I'm me pretty so with busy. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yasmin, you didn't mention where you grew up and where you came from because you've got an interesting background. Yeah, so my parents, my mom is Singaporean, my dad's Egyptian. They met in Saudi Arabia, as all love stories begin, uh, in the middle of a barbecue party back in the 70s. And after my dad quit my mother for a few years, I was born, made in Korea, for random. But it was interesting because like, growing up in that background where there's a lot of conflict because of communication, there's no, like, it makes sense now looking back why I got in- interested in this world. Because what we see around, what we struggle with in our home environments is how we show up and how we become as well. I've lived now in eight countries, been to a quarter of the world. So seen a very different flavor of different things where... Was your father controlling? No, my father actually was wonderful. Right. I was wonderful, supportive, very typical Arab man in the sense that like didn't, never got trained to express his emotions, but really giver and like really serving. So... For him, he worked to provide for us and give us an incredible life that we could. But actually, a lot of times when it comes to work, people mistake it as the father's role. But over the work that I've done over the years, it's actually the mother's role in this whole conversation that impacts our work. The mother's role where, uh, you know, as mothers who, who doubt themselves, then their kids pick up on that doubt too. And that's actually one of the biggest trigger points when it comes to work, because we are in that environment where you're struggling. And for my mother, it was hard. Like, you know, she was working and then she was forced to quit because she was pregnant. Because back then you could fire someone because they were pregnant. And all of a sudden she had a different role uh, in different environments. And my father became the breadwinner because that was just how it was. And in the end, my father lost his job. So can you imagine for her going from a country, like having, bringing income, no longer being allowed to bring income because of the work environment, not her choice, not my father's choice. And then eventually going to a different country, which is Egypt at the time, where she was clearly not welcomed <laughs> into that environment. My grandmother was not a very nice person in that perspective because she didn't want to. Why did my dad marry a foreign woman? Mm. Even though we were born, we had three of us. My grandmother had a hard time accepting that. So you can imagine my mother, she had to go through a lot of things. So when I look back and I reflect on how, why she was the way she was, I understand it. But then my worst stories come from that component where... She was obviously clearly struggling herself. Yeah, got even more pressure on women. All right, so the, the first time we did the self-worth podcast, um, Kathy and I were sort of talking about some of the, the moments in our life where our self-worth was really sort of challenged and how we dealt with it. And, and, you know, it can be small things, it can be big things, but we did a bit of a survey and we had over nearly 90 responses. And the two periods of time when self-worth is challenged is below 14 
and then the next big group were 30 to basically 60 or 50 if my memory serves me correctly. I'd see, yeah. I see both of them as two very different things in different stages of life, but there's a, a lot of damage is done in, in, when people are children, right? So just, just for you guys, would you be willing to share a story where, you know, your self-worth was really challenged and if you were able to overcome it as well? Would you guys, are you happy to share? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Avni, do you want to go first? Um, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so... Actually, when we talk about when it was challenged, I had two specific stages, interestingly, Andrea. So my self-worth was first challenged. In fact, it was demolished from the moment I was born or even before because my parents tried to abort me twice. Wow. Unsuccessfully, clearly, because I am here. So I was born into a very unwanted world and I don't blame them. I don't judge them for that because they did have their reasons for that. And probably at that time, it was the wisest thing that they could have tried to abort me. And I'm still here. They tried it third time. Doctors said, we can't do it third time. <laughs> Too late. So I came into a world where there was immense amount of neglect by everyone, first and foremost by my mom, because she was herself highly abused every single day that she could barely take care of herself, let alone me. And then as a little girl growing up, all I saw was hurt, anger, violence, rejection, as my dad was a full-on alcoholic. And that too, in a state in Gujarat, in, in a city in Gujarat where it was illegal to drink alcohol, right? So it was a taboo, right? So it was a very conservative society where my dad was openly an alcoholic, violent person. So naturally, other parents would keep their children away from me saying that, you know, you can't include Abney in birthday parties or any invites or any kind of functions or events, festivals, whatever's happening, dance competitions, because if you're seen with her, then no one's going to marry you, basically. So girls would basically keep themselves away from me. And so essentially, I feel that I can't say that my self-worth was impacted because it never existed. I was literally as a, as a baby and a little girl growing up, I fully accepted from the first moment that I'm unwanted, unworthy, unloved, right? And I don't deserve any care or attention. So it's like, it's like a frog in a hot water. The frog doesn't know that the water is hot. So I fully accepted it and that became my reality. And if anybody walked all over me or treated me like, you know, treated me like dirt or didn't, it was just not nice. I will be like, yeah, business as usual. That's fine. Right. There was no difference or no distinguishing. And then, of course, I went to UK and I got a whole new life. And to be quite honest, I blocked all of my past memories. And it was like being born again, completely fresh society, fresh people. None of my past stories. My dad, you know, wasn't in UK with me for the first few years. We were alone. So it was a new identity, really. And I literally forgot all about my past and started a new life. And I became a new person, right? How, and I how, and how old were you then? I was 14 at that yeah. time. Yeah. So now I find it really shocking and surprising as to how I became a new person. And I and I think the only way I could have done that and the only way I did do that is because I blocked everything out, literally blocked it out, like it doesn't exist. I developed new friends, new life, you know, and new set of confidence and all of that. And then I came to Singapore. Uh, in my sort of mid to late 30s. Yeah, about mid 30s. And I think 
universal energy or life really wanted me to, and I'm grateful for it now, wanted me to face my childhood pains so that I can, I guess, develop more peace and power through it. And it come, somehow brought a certain social circle to me, a few people only, who behaved in such a way to me through lying, gossiping, hurting me, that it completely burst my bubble of what I thought was confidence and a normal life, right? They did certain things in such a way that I literally went flat. That's when, as an adult, for the first time, I realized that I had zero self-confidence, self-love, self-worth, self-expression for myself. So at that time, I realized that, holy crap, I was actually in a lot of hot water. And I didn't even know that. It's when the bubble burst. It's like there was a whole contrast. And that's when I started looking into, um, you know, coaching, therapy, did a lot of therapeutic work. And that's when I came across inner child therapy, loved it, fell in love with it, became an inner child therapist, and did a lot of self-healing to move past it, right? And start to build my self-love, self-expression, and self-worth inside. These were the three mandates given to my therapist. And I said to them, point blank, I'm categorically missing these three things. And my mandate for myself and my mission is to develop them fully. And I started my journey there. But yeah, just realizing that I was utterly missing it was a true blessing for me. Uh, and those people who hurt me the most, I, I thank them deep inside. I'm grateful to them. You know, at every Thanksgiving day, I actually thank them deep in my heart that thanks for being such horrible people. Because honestly, if they were not, I could have easily had two or three more decades in my whole life in my happy little bubble, not knowing that I had to build so much of myself, that so much was so many, you know, building blocks were missing. Like looking at the person you are today, you're incredible. I mean, I admire you even more. But with your husband, that would have been an unbelievably challenging thing to go through with him because he, the girl that he met was hiding all this truth from herself, right? So was he, I'm sure he was wonderful. Yeah, Jeff is, um, he, my, my mom calls him a farishta and I think uh, some people who know this word might recognize it. Farishta means an angel and he is, he is an angel. He is so patient. He is like, I mean, he's amazing. He, he's loving, kind, completely forgiving, just relaxed. And he just gives me that space to be, make mistakes and just discover myself. And yeah, totally, totally crazy about him. And he's, he's really amazing. And I could have not, could have not done it without him. And I, I do feel that people meet for a reason and I could have not done it without him. I really don't think so, you know. So I think we we make good uh, two sides of the uh, we 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 make a good coin together. I think I'm really grateful for him. Beautiful. Feel free to ask questions, everyone. Are we are we all just sitting here in shock? I just <laughs> want to say how powerful it yeah. is to just have these conversations yeah. and speaking from the heart about the truth yeah. of our lives. We spend so much time talking superficially right, about what's happening in places that really are not deep and, ma and meaningful like this. So I, I thank you for sharing. My pleasure. And, and, you know, before sharing this, I actually had a conversation with a good friend of mine, and I said, I'm about to share this on a podcast. And this is not something I've really shared about myself so publicly in the sense. And is it okay for me to do so and all this, you know, I, I was I was concerned if it's okay or not. And it was really helpful to talk to her because it brought my energy to a very 
key point, which is the purpose of sharing, right? Which is the purpose of sharing is not to get the violin out at all. The purpose of sharing is that no matter where we are and no matter where we begin our journey of self-worth, we can build and uplift ourselves. So this is why, and I said, I'm going to be sharing some really dark things about my past. And, you know, so I thought, yeah, the bottom line is that the purpose of sharing is to really help us uplift ourselves and actually see that there is a gradient and anyone can go through that gradient. I think another really important part of sharing is too many people presume too much about the people that they meet and they don't know their stories. And we don't give people the space to have a story. We we go into judgment first versus saying, what's wrong? What's happened? Who hurt you? You know, and because all of us have been hurt. But the other thing I really loved about what you said was the forgiveness. So I remember my dad apologised for my parents getting divorced about five or six years afterwards. It was a pretty horrible divorce and very ugly time. And I was very angry for a long time. And then when he finally said, sorry, I just said, you don't have to say sorry. I am who I am because of all of the pieces that happened. And I like who I am. So you don't ever have to say sorry. And that that was a because so many people struggle with the forgiveness bit, right? And if you can look at it from different eyes, I think that also releases, it sets you free, right? When you can forgive people because they gave you a gift. It wasn't necessarily a, a gift that made you smile when you opened it, but it was, a, it was still a gift. Yeah. And the journey to forgiveness with my dad is another one altogether. Like he also said that, you know, please forgive me and I've really, really hurt you. And I said, Papa, you know, first of all, you hurt me because of your pains as well. And I know his story of how he lived his life and what made him the man he became. So for me, it was like, Papa, I'm going through an inner transformation journey. I'm going through a lot of self-work and I invite you to go on that same journey with me. And, you know, to some extent and to quite an extent he did, he was here for three months when he came for three weeks and he ended up staying for three months. And I would say that every day was like a long therapeutic session when there was not a single day he didn't cry and grief uh, grieved over his lost childhood and the man he came when he came to Singapore and the man that left were two different people so yeah my my family often joke what happens to people that come to Singapore <laughs> do they get kidnapped by you know aliens or something because that happened to my dad and another person you know I would just add in when we share stories like what you just shared Avnate that are stories about what uh, challenges we've gone through that are deeper kinds of stories. I think another thing, benefit of that is that people get to hear something different from what we tend to assume when we're talking to people and we don't go deep, as you were saying, Kat, and we don't really understand where people have come from. Very often we assume, this relates to self-worth, that other people have better lives than I do because I had all this stuff. And just it's so important to share, which is part of why we're doing this podcast. It's really learning other people's challenges as well. All right, Yasmin, are you ready to go? Yeah. So I'm not sure start at the middle or the beginning or the end because um, like I've had to learn and because like, very much like um, Anthony, I wasn't aware that I had an issue with self-worth until I was at a sound healing retreat in Bali and I didn't want to go. But the woman who was running the retreat was like, oh, you should go. It's like, at least worst case, you'll, like, you'll have a nap. It'll be very relaxing for you. But it wasn't relaxing at all because I experienced two very strong sensations. I felt in my stomach 
this massive pain. And then I was going through like reaching out and like got so high. And the whole time I felt like super high and so much pain at the same time. And at the end of the session, by chance, the universe, I had a friend visiting with his wife on their honeymoon who also came for the class. And I was like, Matthias, this is so strange. I don't understand what was going on. And he looks at me as like, do you know about chakras? And I looked at him, I was like, oh my gosh, eyes roll. Like you, the German man that knows about chakras, like, what is this? Like, and he was like, well, you're talking about is the solar plexus, which is, and your heart, you know, like your, your um, crown chakra. And the solar plexus is the one linked to confidence and worth. And I remember thinking, I'm confident. And he's like, well, there's different kinds of confidence. And I realized then that I started just crying and crying because I realized that although I had an external confidence internally, had all these dilemmas and these question marks and un, like just confused about things because it didn't make sense what, what I was going through. And for me, like my mom didn't want children. Like my father basically gave her the ultimatum. You either, we either break up or we have kids. So it was like, okay. So then she didn't want them. And then she was having them late. So she had two back to back. So I was born, my brother was born um, less than 14 months after. So I already got the cue that I didn't deserve to feel sad. I didn't deserve to feel what I felt because she was going through this pain of having two children. And I was reminded all the time that she was sacrificing stuff to give us a life, which I thought was just something that was normal until I got older and I realized that like, I didn't choose to be born. <laughs> like I didn't choose for you guys to do what you did to create me. And then to constantly be reminded of that. And because she was going through her own pain, she was just not kind because she was struggling with her own self. And also in the context of where I, I grew up in the Arab world, where as a woman, your role is also to not, it's, it's, it's more to be like subservient in a sense. So I just thought that was like normal. Like I didn't know anything different until I remember going away on my exchange year to Canada and realizing, wait, wait, girls and guys, it can be the same. Like I can say no just for saying no, because where I was growing up, you couldn't, you had no choice. And one of the things that was really difficult is in Egypt, uh, sexual um, harassment is very, very common. So I just thought like, well, if I was worthy, I wouldn't be harassed. And I had made this weird association about those things. And it got to the point that when I was 25, um, a good friend of mine tried to rape me. And that was just for me a deciding factor. It's like, well, clearly I'm not worthy because if I was worthy, I would be given space. I'd be given time. I would then given love unconditionally, but I didn't have those things. And similar to Abney, through all sorts of healing methodologies, I realized that like, I'm just a wounded girl who all she wanted to do was have love. But then I was trying to get love from people around me who didn't ever experience love themselves. So at one point, you start to realize on the spectrum of, of emotions, it's either shame or guilt or gratitude and forgiveness. And living in shame and guilt, which I did for a, a, a long time, was more painful than shifting over to gratitude and forgiveness. And to realize that we all go through different pains, but essentially everything that everyone wants is to feel like they are love and they, that they are enough. And once you start to see it like that, it becomes quite different to, to, to realize that we're living in a world where people have so much pain, especially now that 
all that we need to do to change it is actually just to give people the space to feel like you are loved just because you are loved with no um, expectation. You know, one of the things that you were talking about, this, this idea that you were responsible for what was happening to you. Yeah. Is that you? Is it cultural? You know, like I, I remember going to Egypt in 1992 and I was constantly fighting off men trying to rape me in tombs and just grabbing me everywhere I went. It was just, I'd never know. It was the first country I ever went to outside of Australia. So after that, I could go anywhere. I was tough. I was punching guys left, right and centre. But that idea that women are responsible for that attention on us, I don't know if that's, uh, is it everywhere? Do you guys think it's everywhere? I mean, I think to an extent it is, right? I can't speak from a different land other than the lands that I grew up in. But in the Middle East, like literally the comments that you get are, well, look what you were wearing. What do you expect? Look how you showed up. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like I'm responsible for your shitty ass behavior. Like, let's get real about that. Yeah. And then the problem is when everyone accepts it as the truth, you see it as truth as well. Yeah. And that's the same in every court case in all over the world. What, what, what was she wearing, right? You know, we've got this world... And I think in some parts of the world, it's more extreme than others. But we've got this world where we've never addressed the fact that women are not responsible for men's bad behaviour. Men are responsible for men's bad behaviour. And, and we don't seem to sh- get the point that we've got to change that way of thinking. Right? We just don't. But one thing that was really interesting is in university, uh, I had this professor. I still remember her, Dr. Soyad Turki. She was a Saudi professor, the first in her family of seven girls to get educated get a degree and become a doctor. Like everyone else was married by the time at 13, 14, 15. I think last one before her was like 18. And she asked that question in class. She said, who is responsible for the way women are treated in the Middle East? And I remember thinking, everyone put their hand like, oh, obviously the men, right? And she said something that was till today quite pivotal because she said, let's think about it. In the households, when somebody comes over, who brings the drinks? Who washes the plates? Who is responsible for doing these duties and who is giving the cues? And it's the mother. And the mother is the one who says, you are the way you are because they're putting you in that role. And at least in my household, I saw that a lot. And my brother had very bad behavior. He had, unfortunately, a poor coping mechanism that led him to do drugs. And somehow it was my fault that he did drugs and we were dealing with his abuse issues. That's not my issue. That's his. But somehow it's as women, we're responsible for that. And you're, you should have been better sister. It's like... If he wants to do drugs, no matter what I do, that's not on me to own. Yeah. That is his choice that he has chosen for his own path. I use food as my abuse, right? I use food to take care of my emotions. He used drugs. We all had different vice, but somehow I had the extra pressure and responsibility because I am a woman and because I'm Arab, that it's your responsibility as well. Apne, you have something to share? Um, yeah. Um, so about that, people grouping people. So in I was brought up in Baroda and I don't know what the reality is like in Mumbai and Delhi and cities like that. But in Baroda, it was terrible about, you know, 40 years ago. I had a continual experience where anywhere and everywhere people felt OK, that it was it's OK to group women. Yeah. So I would be on a because in India, I was allowed to ride um, scooters earlier on. Okay, so I was only about 12 and I was on my scooter already. Right. So I'm going on my scooter, sometimes bicycle. And people will actually try and grope me whilst I'm on the scooter. So I'm just giggling because I I, I was in um, India with I I made this really great friend, American girl called Michelle Giamuso, and she had big, big 
boobs too, right? And so I taught her how to walk with her fists in front of her boobs. And if anyone touched her, she punched him and kept walking. That was that was my way, right? <laughs> uh, because I actually found men, in, especially in the Middle East and in India, they, they, they couldn't cope with a woman that did that because they, they just they'd never experienced it before. So they, hmm. But before they even could come to terms with what had happened, you're already gone, right? And we're, yeah. she was she was in a rickshaw in front of me. I'm I'm behind her. This guy is on a motorbike, comes up beside the rickshaw, stands up on the motorbike, reaches over and grabs a boob while she's in the rickshaw. And and I was laughing my ass off. She was so angry. She was like standing up, screaming and pumping her fist. But I was the funniest thing I've ever seen. But of course it's not funny. Of course it's not. But yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, as a twelve year old, I was petrified, and I didn't even have any boobs at that time. You know, so I don't know what they were trying to grope at, really. But um, but yeah. Horrible. It, it was horrible. You know, you never felt safe anywhere, and I didn't. Um, and so for me, going to UK was like, wow, I'm invisible, and this is great. <laughs> you know, yeah. nobody cares. You know, which is really good. And there was another incident where it was holy. You know, the holy, the festival where people put colors on each other. So there I am playing holy. You know, with uh, a few neighbors at that time, and um, suddenly a whole bunch of eight or ten big guys possibly late teens, early 20s, surrounded me, right? And I basically, uh, they were all putting their hands, trying to put their hands absolutely everywhere, okay? And I basically slipped between their legs and escaped, okay? And this is a part which I might have to ask you to cut off later. But basically, I slipped between their legs. I, I ran away. And the complaint I got when I got home and I got a complaint about that about me when I got home. Is that what were you doing there? And why were you seen in the middle of 10 men? Oh my gosh, I've heard yeah. that before, Avni. Horrible, horrible. I will never forgive the person. Okay, luckily you don't have to cut it out because I will not tell you who that person was. Okay, somebody close to me complains to me, okay, that my friend saw you escaping or, you know, coming out of these legs, right? What were you doing there, yeah. right? And why were you caught like this? Or what were you up to, right? And I was like, I cannot believe that you would blame me for this, mm. yeah? And and what was your friend doing, telling you and complaining to you? Why the hell was it your friend there to help me, you know? Yeah. Why didn't he come and even talk to me and say, hey, Avni, are you okay? Yeah, can I give you a lift home, right? Yeah. I'm a child after all, and this friend is older, right? So yeah, anyway, so I was so glad you just can't believe I was so glad to get out of uh, India I really I was yeah I, mean, I know other people in India do not have this experience I think many will be shocked to hear that Avni has such a terrible life there but I just want to say Avni don't do that it feels like you are saying yeah this was my bad experience and other people may not have had it but uh, honor what it was because the rest of us have had it. It's not just India, it's everywhere. Honor it because it's real. It happened and the experience is valuable in who it's made you be today. And the sharing of it is important to everybody. So don't don't feel the need to diminish it, right? Because it deserves its voice the voice that you've given it and it's necessary to have these conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think if any man is listening to this, then I would say that, you know, that when your child or your brother or your sister or somebody else, they go through this, don't blame them. Right. For the fact that I got blamed, you know, so that creates like yeah. double, whatever you call it. Right. So um, double hurt, really. Don't blame the person who's going through this, support them, be there for them, talk to yeah. them. 
you know, one of the things I'm noticing from what you shared about Yasmin and Avni as well is that responses we get from people around us have an impact on our own sense of self-worth. So when men or boys are doing something that is invading our own space or treating us as if we're just, we're nobody, totally disrespecting any kind of being trying to rape or trying to touch another person's body without any kind of consent. And especially when we're little, there's something that has an impact where we're thinking, you know, I am not of value. I don't have a sense of self-worth. And similar kinds of things happen when we see parents being kinder to our brothers than than to us because we're girls as you said Yasmin you were the it was your fault that your brother you know was doing what he was doing it's just uh it's things that really have an impact on our self-worth that responses or reactions of other people around us just it's part of what how we get there to having less self-worth all right you ready to talk Sure. I would say the first time I remember my self-worth being challenged, I was six years old. And, you know, Avni refers to being born into an unwanted world. I was born into conflict, African-American, and I was growing up during the, it, it doesn't even feel right to say the latter years of the civil rights movement in the U.S., because I feel like it's still going on. Not a, it's not done. It's not done yet. Why? Why are we still talking about this? At that time, the school systems were still largely segregated. The African-Americans went to school in their neighborhoods. The white, uh, the Caucasian-Americans went to schools in their neighborhoods. Uh, And so there was an effort to integrate the school systems. And, you know, it sounds like a a great thing, right? But in practice, what that (laughs) meant was you had all of these kids coming together in a huge bus interchange in the mornings to get on their buses and go out to all these different districts. And in the afternoons coming home from school, getting off the buses and the buses leaving, and then all of these different kids are there. And that's when all the name calling, all the fighting, all the stuff happened. I was six years old and I remember wondering, why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? I couldn't understand. And I remember my parents, my very first purse was not about having a purse to carry my lunch money to school. It was about having a purse that I could stick. First, the idea was rocks in so that I could fight and defend myself. We realized that was too much. And then my father went through the effort of figuring out what's the right role of coins to put into my purse that I could swing and, and hurt someone just enough that I could get away and run. And I remember the day getting off the bus. I had two older, older brothers, and they were really in the midst of all the fights. I remember my brother telling me, Cat, run. And I was like, what do you mean run? Run because we're about to have a fight. I'm not leaving you. And I'm crying, right? I'm a six-year-old girl. I'm not leaving my brother. And I knew all the stuff that happened. And he said, Kat, you have to run because I'm about to hit this guy and run and you can't run fast enough. And, you know, and so, and I had to run, but I I just couldn't stop crying. And, you know, to this day, it impacts me to this day. You know, I, I remember that so vividly. And, you know, to this day, I do not carry bags that are not functional. I don't, I don't have any fashion bags. My bags are things that carry things. 
And I don't run. I don't run. I fight. And for for good or for bad, I take stuff on and I, I just, you know, I never and and you know, thank God I've not been in such a crazy situation where somebody had a gun or a knife or something like that where I really needed to run. But it has shaped me in that way, not necessarily a good thing. Because when things started to change for me, I remember I was so angry. I raged against anything even before it looked like it was about to happen. And I remember a stranger ran into me in the street and said, why are you so hateful? And I thought to myself, I'm not. I'm not a hateful person. And that was the beginning of, you know, how sometimes it's that it's the stranger in the street that holds a mirror up to you and reflects yourself enough for you to see that glimpse that makes you transform. And that was it for me. I realized that I allowed the worst of my context to shape me. And that instead of allowing myself to, from the inside, decide who I am, I allowed all the bad stuff around me to to determine my behaviors and how I showed up in the world. And, and, you know, and that was the difference. I had a family that created nothing but positivity in this. They nothing but praise. I could do no wrong. My mother was my biggest fan. Nothing but support. Believed I could do anything in the world. So much so that I don't trust what she says to me now to this day. So I had no problem in the home of people giving us a sense of who we are and what our identity is and what we are capable of. But there was this sort of, I don't know if you could call it sort of cognitive dissonance that The moment I stepped outside of my home and started facing people that thought I was less than because of the color of my skin or for whatever reason, whatever they locked into that had to do with my differences, whether it was from being a woman or whatever, that was where I, I couldn't make sense of it. No matter how strong you believe that you have a sense of self-worth, that external world still impacted me. I I love that. And I love very much how you said that it was like you chose that context, right? The same story can happen, but when we choose a different context, we we see it so differently. And of course it affects so many aspects of our life as well. I just think how lucky you were to have a loving home. You think of the amount of children who wouldn't have had that home, that sanctuary, the safety, right? And so your parents, you know, awesome job right but you know as a white person growing up in australia and i mean the town i grew up in was so white for the longest time it's become more more mixed now but like i can't even imagine what it was like to be to grow up in a world like that you know you know the ruby bridges when she went to school in america there's there's some footage was released just a couple of years ago did you any of you guys see it she was that little tiny little tiny black girl that went to school in america uh, and the scene that really, really struck me was all of these white families lined up just spewing this absolute rage at this tiny little tot. What was more alarming was the children standing with their parents, looking up at their parents' parents' faces and just learning that anger, you know, learning that feeling. And and I, I often wonder how many of those children were able to break free of that bias, right? Because, you know, 
parents are so important in a child's life. And we've all spoken about parents in different ways, right? And the role of parents. And I, I, can't, I can't imagine what it was like for you. I just can't. Yeah. And Kat, as I was hearing you and listening to you, it takes me to that whole world of when our inner self-worth gets damaged, then, you know, uh, it shapes uh, how we see things, doesn't it? You know, it, our, our inner perspective gets damaged about ourselves and we respond to it, we react to it, and then we become somebody who we are not and we would have otherwise never chosen to be for, for good or bad, right? For, uh, and, and so I feel that, um, I, I feel like everyone deserves a gift of um, healing their pain and literally looking at every single incident that happened in the childhood and processing it like every incident that happened in the childhood, actually going back and being there, like this is the process I went through, like going back and being there for my six-year-old, right? When I was left out to sit by myself where everybody else is dancing together, for example, go back and spend time with that little six-year-old and, and be there for her and have a conversation with her and support and nurture in a way that I can, yeah, heal and fix and process and give that child what that child needed at that time and so that's actually the a little bit of the process of the inner child work but point being when things in life like this break us whether it's because of family or society or other circumstances I think we owe it to ourselves and our generations to come to really process and heal ourselves so that we're not carrying that pain within ourselves. So just moving on to the next question, because I think we can expand on the stories that you've shared as well. Like I, I actually think we've got a global pandemic of low self-worth amongst women. And I see it in teenage girls. I see it in grown women. I see it. See it, 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 it it's, it's always there. You can always tell when a person doesn't feel a strong sense of self-worth, even if they're covering it with a shield. You can always, I'm one of those people that can always see it. And because I, I actually believe if we could, if we could solve the self-worth challenge for women, we could actually really change the world. Why do you think there's such a problem? I mean, is it is it historic, religious, cultural? Because it's everywhere. It's not just in, you know, probably, you know, probably Singapore is one of the countries that I felt where women are more encouraged to, to step forward. There's more women in senior leadership roles. They're not one of the best in the world, but they do well. The, uh, the Nordic countries, they obviously do a good job. But why have we got this problem? Why have we got this heritage and why can't you know, what do you guys think? I, I think for me, I think it, uh, it boils down to something that's really helped me recently in the past few years is looking at like personal power. And I think I, I didn't realize how much I had for myself. And that, and I think it's also because like, at least for me personally, I wasn't being integral with my word. So when I didn't do that, there's nothing to believe in. So therefore, all the doubts that people were having, I believed. And then I gave my power to people around me. And then I blamed everyone. I blamed, you know, my mother. I blamed a bad boss. I blamed the men I was dating. Because that, that way it was just passing on that thing versus realizing, wait, I have the power to also create. And I think right now in the middle of the pandemic, people are in this place where they spend so much time blaming Versus actually looking inwards and looking at actually, first of all, like, where are you making yourself question yourself? Where are you creating doubt in your life every single day? Whatever that may be, whether it's you're committing to go for a walk every day and you're not, 
whether you're committing to not watch four hours of Netflix, but you still do. And then all those things are just there to create that small little doubt. And doubt is all we need to actually question our world. I think too many people benefit from the subjugation of women, whether it's personal pleasure or whatever you call it. But, you know, if you have half the world that are males that are getting off on all the little games that they play with women, and we, I believe we all have our stories of I have stories of fighting in the street in daytime, people driving by, and I am fighting with an ex-boyfriend that was angry that I left him. And we are physically fighting. I'm crying. I'm screaming. And people will slow down and look in their cars, and nobody would stop. And there are just too many people that want to have women in certain ways in certain places. And we all know a powerful, self-confident woman is not an easy thing to have to confront in your world. You know, when you are trying to have things your way only. And so it takes a certain kind of person that is confident themselves. I think men have their own issues of self-worth, you know, that are just perpetrated in different ways and that they have a problem dealing with women that are that have a healthy sense of self-worth themselves. And so I think they just, they benefit from it in too many ways. And and we have too many bystanders just letting it continue. Do you think lack of self-worth attracts lack of self-worth? What do you mean by that, Andrea? The couples, when, you know, when you've got a couple together and if she doesn't have strong self-worth and he doesn't have strong self-worth, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the problems that we see in relationships could probably be tied back to that. So, you know, when we talk about a lot of men benefit from it, right? But actually societies don't benefit from it. Businesses don't benefit. Societies don't benefit, you know, give women the right to choose, to have an abortion, to be educated, to do whatever they want to do. The societies flourish and more, you know, the more women that are involved in leadership positions in government roles, the more activity happens around the climate and maintaining the environment. So to me, it's like when you make space for women to flourish, everybody flourishes. So anyone who holds women back is actually holding themselves back. And that's always something like, that's always like, why why can't we get that basic truth? Yeah, but I think kind of going back to Kat's point is there's short term and long term. And I think the discomfort is in the short term. So they don't look at that from a, like a macro level. They're looking at it as like, this is uncomfortable for me. This is an awkward situation. So therefore I will say, and then even going back to your point of like, you know, self-worth, attract self-worth. I also think it's like, and so I run a, a WhatsApp group called Love, Sex and Dating, right? Started off talk about dating and figuring out this whole relationship world. And it was interesting because at the very beginning, I realized some people would come and they come in their little clicks right into our events. And what would happen is if a woman had a negative self-story, but was acceptable in a relationship, and her friends typically had the same story. And because the group was so different, we were having conversations that were like, actually, you deserve better than this, you know? But because all her friends were like that, she thought she was like, that was good. So I also feel like when we're, when we are in a space of self-worth, we even choose friends that make us feel comfortable in that place as well. So I look at it also from like, not only just men and women, but also women and women in the role yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. It's like birds of a feather that flock together, right? People feel comfortable around people who 
confirm what they think, like confirmation bias. So I think to some extent, uh, why women have more self-worth challenges than men, I think it is cultural and historical. Women across most regions across the world were marginalized or were, I'm saying, still are in many cases. There are few cultures where women are actually regarded much more highly than men in some cultures. But generally speaking, they were marginalized and women have had to fight their way through and really stand their ground. So to some extent, it is cultural. But I don't know why, maybe because I have got, you know, kids who are men and women both have got boys and girls. I see people as people and I feel equal amount of empathy for any human being that lacks in self-worth. And I work with people who lack self-worth, who are men and women. And a lot of men really lack self-worth as well. So I think, you know, you were asking, where does that originate from? And I think ultimately, Every man, woman and child, when we are born, of course, you know, we are whole and complete and we have we are incredible in our capabilities of infinite love, joy, growth and contribution to the society. We can do so much. Right. So this thing called self-worth, if we really look at it, our worth, what are we worth? Right. If we are completely whole and complete when we are born and we can do infinite amount of things, then our self-worth is actually infinite. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we can all bring up our kids to know that they're capable of infinite amount of good stuff and capable of infinite amount of feeling good stuff, and their self-worth is infinite, literally, then I think that's a great start. And looking at how it then gets damaged is when anyone or anything or any circumstance in life uh, makes us feel less than who we really are. And just to build on that, I'm really clear that I'm with you. We're all built, born with huge amounts of self-worth. That's how we come into the world. But we come into this world that historically, throughout history, men have been given advantages. And part of the line is that women need to, women are the ones who have kids, so they need to just be in the home and take care of the kids and, and the men will do the everything else, the work and the fighting and every all of that. But what also comes with that, which is sort of screwed up to begin with, the fundamental thing is that society gives less freedom to women. And when we think about self-worth, really, I, I can tell you a teeny weeny little thing that that happened to me when I was little. I must have been five or six. My father loved to do to build stuff, even though he was a lawyer. He loved to build, I don't know, anything like carpentry stuff. And he built this little go-kart for the little teenage boys, like 14, 15, 13-year-old boys in our neighborhood. And, and it had a motor. He put the motor on and you could drive it. And I loved that. And I was out there with him. We were lived in Florida. It was hot, hotter than Hades. And all the boys, it was in the summertime, all the boys had their shirts off. And I was hot and I thought, okay, great. So I took my shirt off and I'll never forget my mother called me, catch it, come here right now. You have to go And I just learned. And I was like, well, they have theirs. Yes, but they're boys. It's like, it's, it's like I'm starting to start a photography little um, study because I always see men and women going out to dinner together. And guess what? The woman is dressed to the freaking nines and looks like she should be on a catwalk somewhere, a model. And the guy has got ripped jeans and, and a T-shirt on. In this society, how we hold our bodies, 
for women, I'm just going to say it's restricted. You cannot sit. If you felt comfortable to sit with your legs spread, that was comfortable. Um, you can't do that in public if you're a woman, because people will, I mean, you could, but people will look at you differently. If you walk even for a woman to stand and, and really have a power pose, people don't accept that so much. How we hold our bodies, how we, how we, what we wear, what we're allowed to do. I mean, really, we've, we are living in a world that favors men. I'm totally with you. Boys and men have problems with their own self-esteem sometimes or their self-worth. But fundamentally, the big underlying message in our world is boys are better. There's so many studies, like even as little kids, we give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, forever, there's been this phrase, boys will be boys. She can delete that, but what, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it's really funny. As you're saying that, like, the one thing that comes up for me as a story is, like, as a kid, I did not like spaghetti bolognese. And my mom made it all the time because my brothers loved it. And her answer was literally because your brothers love it. And I'm just like, okay, right, that's just how it is. And then also in the Arab world, when women, when like people die, women get less than a man. And that historically was there for a reason because a woman would go to her partner's house or the brother take care of the woman. But those things have changed. And still you have households where you think, yeah, of course, like you get less. And it's just like the fact that this is normal and normalized are even more cues systemically that women treated less. Yeah. And then also like back to even the minority lens that we talked about right at the beginning with also with Kat is like, you think about like women having also money that also impacts your decision-making women being in environments where they're domestically abused, also decision-making. And even like I was on a panel once years ago that I was still shocked by talking about women and money. And then afterwards you we went for drinks, the panelists and the women were talking about how they got pushed over from stock options and they were getting paid less than their men colleagues. And then, like, how can you woman talk about it on a panel and advocate for this stuff? And even you yourself don't have the shit sorted. And mm. for me, I was like, the fact that you are the leaders who are the MDs of some of these companies, and it's really because of worth, not really because of the skill, because the skill is there. It's interesting. Yeah. I always felt like I had a reverse parenting. So my mom worked full time and my dad stayed at home and he was an artist. Eventually, he had to go back to work because he wasn't making any money because he didn't know how to sell. Um, <laughs> he, I've, I've inherited his, uh, his qualities on, on that. But the other thing that happened in our family was there's two girls, two boys. And my sister and I were raised. We were the children that were focused on, whereas my brothers didn't get the focus. Mm-hmm. So we actually had reversed upbringings as children as well. And it was mainly because my dad's family hadn't had a female born into, into their family for generations. So the female focus and, you know, like we're all good musicians, but my sister and I excelled and and it was never financial support because mum and dad didn't have any money. It was belief support, like, you know, um, just go, you know, go for it. We went to better schools. We got scholarships at a school, whereas my brothers had to, or one of my brothers had to go to a horrible local public school that he just was in fights every single day and he, he had to wear shorts in the winter, which was... Something my dad did when he was a kid and then he just got picked on all the time and it was horrible for him, you know. And as, as the daughters in the family, we were raised to be strong. And I think, I mean, I don't have daughters. I wish I had a daughter. I, I would have, she would be the gutsiest broad in town because oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd make sure of it. But, yeah, teaching our daughters strength, I think, is, and strength in all ways. Like if I, yeah. if I had a daughter, she'd be doing martial arts and, you know, could take care of herself physically as well, but. The physical presence thing, like the getting less, 
but also taking up less space in public. Yeah. You know, my one of my one of my boys was turning into a bit of a man spreader. Do you do you guys know what yeah. that means? Yes. You know, that? They, they basically sit down and spread their legs. You know, you get on a train sometimes, and some guy will sit there and spread his legs, and so you sit next to him, and you kind of have to sort of hunch up because he's taking up your space. Um, there's a lot of men in the world that take up a lot of physical space, yeah. and they're not aware oh, of their oh, impact. Oh. And I find that really really fascinating. But but we also tend to shrink. And then what you were saying about dressing up. So we shrink physically in, in the physical world, but we also, you know, we're like peacocks as well, right, with the way we dress and the fashion and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So, it, it, yeah, it's a, we're, the world's an interesting contradiction, isn't it? I was raised to be ladylike, by the way. Um, it didn't work, but yeah. that's what yeah. my mother wanted. I wasn't. <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> but I rebelled because she tried so hard. But what's interesting, even like talking about space, is I grew two centimeters over the past year. And I don't think I grew, I think I've always been this height, but I've shrunk my shoulders down to make sure that I didn't pick up too much space. And I actually got really emotional when I discovered that. I was just like, I got like, I'm now 170. I used to be 168. Now I'm 170. And I'm like, I think I was always as tall, but because I was just so told not to do it, that I was just, you know, hiding. Yeah. And like, although men are men's brothers, I know that for me, I was emotionally eating and gaining weight so that people would not see me because that way I wouldn't get attention because I had harassed and abused multiple times in my life, which is also really messed up because it's like, I don't need to open my legs up to the world to be that. I can also just shy away and hide that by packing up pounds. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just very fascinating how we, we hide, but not always the same way as a man will do. I love this idea of taking up space. I've actually used it as a countermeasure when I working in a technology field, you know, I often will run into people that will talk down to me uh, and using that condescending tone. And I started wearing four inch heels when I knew I was going to be in meetings with these guys. <laughs> and I would, I would spread my legs in the meeting when they would start to go there. I would sit in my power pose and, you know, spread my leg. And then I, when they're at the, Bored talking and talking down to me, I would stand up and stand in their space and tower over them. I'm a tall person just to have that physical that. impact. That is great. You know, I wanted to add um, to a couple of things that Kathy shared, you know, and all of you shared is that when people don't give, we can still ask and take and stand up for ourselves, right? So yes, there is a culture of not being given as much attention, as much space or as much right or voice, but we, we can. I think women have got the ability to stand up and ask for and take and say what they need. Because I think this is something I'd really like you know anyone who's listening to really think about because when people are suppressed, they feel like a victim. And when they feel like a victim, some part of them accepts it and they don't stand up and think this is how it is. And oh no, you know, poor me, so to speak. But actually, every single person, no matter where and no matter how much of a terrible situation they could be in, actually can stand up. And yeah, it takes a lot of courage and it can be riskier. Sometimes some people will be risking their lives, literally, because they stood up, right? They would be risking their lives sometimes. But it's worth doing that because then it gives courage to other people to then stand up as well. And I watched my mom stand up for herself at the age of 65, right? And she left my dad at the age of 65. She said, enough, you're on your own now. And she moved out for about six years. 
right? And then eventually she moved into the family home because my little brother wanted her and everything was different by this point. My dad had changed and things were different and they could live together under the same roof as companions. And now they continue to do so. But for six years, she moved out and, you know, said enough is enough, right? So I think if my 65-year-old mom can do it after having an abusive life for, you know, 40 years, um, anyone can. But I think it's also um, like when we hear stories like that, we start to think that actually that's a possibility. And, and I think also technology, even though it's been very stressful, it's also so powerful because you have more of these channels that are being shared. And then you realize, yeah. wait, I don't need to take this shit. I can literally walk yeah. away. People have a choice. It's just that people have a choice and they need courage to really execute that choice. It does take a lot of courage and support, but people do have a choice. So no matter where we are, we can stand up. Um, there is another thing I wanted to add about dressing up and being peacocks. I feel that women, yes, women, sometimes pop, women dress up because they feel like they have to, right? Please, etc. And if that's happening, yes, we don't want to go there and we don't want to, we have, want to work on our self-worth so that we don't do that. But I, I love dressing up because I like nice materials. I like colors. I like colors. I like materials. I like the feel of good clothes, you know? And it's like, I, I love painting and decorating. Similarly, I like painting and decorating and, and, and loving my body for what it is. So I'm one of those women who might sometimes dress really nicely. And my husband would be like, I can't be bothered to dress up. Can I, can I please turn up in t-shirt and jeans, Avni? And I'm like, yep, suit yourself, you know, but I want to, I want to wear something nice. Don't forget, I was the one that turned up and dressed up as the queen one night. So I'm not against yes. people dressing yeah. up, right? And I'm, I'm, really not, not, I'm yeah. not against it. I'm just saying there is a freedom. Yeah. If you went out, Avni, to a nice restaurant, your husband dresses up really well, but you don't. Oh, I can, you, yeah. It will not yeah. be okay. And let's say you both go out looking like what your husband is looking like. Yeah. You, it will not be okay. But it's what tends to happen. I'm not kidding. Margaret and I look at all the time. A woman will be absolutely like drop dead gorgeous. Yeah. And man is like, I can't be bothered to to go out sort of looking like we're going to the same place. It's just it's another thing of respect. But women don't have the freedom. Mm. Tell me a, a time that you've ever seen. I haven't seen this. You're right. A couple going out where the man is just dressed a nice suit and all oh, looks great, and the woman is you know, in, you know, ready jeans and a T-shirt. Hmm. It just doesn't happen. Can I just add, you know, we haven't touched on religion and I know most people are, are reluctant to do so. I was raised in the Catholic Church and uh, my mum's a very strong lady and I always saw this contradiction between who she was in life and who she was in the church. So she became a lay priest, which meant she could give communion at church to those who are not Catholic and don't understand the tradition. And I used to say to her, how can you support a church that doesn't give you the right to be up there? Yeah. Like, how can you do it? And she just, we used to have these conversations all the time about it. But for me, the role of religion in holding women back, and I don't think all religions are the same, but, but I think it's a big part of it. And, you know, and I think culturally, you know, I mean, obviously, depending on which country you come from, there's different cultural aspects to holding women back. You know, Australia's got that reputation, you know, it's a, it's a hard men sort of country. It's not the country I grew up in when people talk about Australia that way because it's not the family or the community I grew up in. So, you know, I think there's there's some big aspects that we've got to look at. I know. For me, it's interesting because, like, Islam is a beautiful religion and there's a lot, like, it was the first religion in the world to give women rights. 
like alimony and all sorts of things. But there's also some things that like as a kid, not understanding was really confusing. And like, for example, you go to the mosque and the woman prays behind the man. And like, initially the answer I got told, I was like, why do we pray behind? The answer I got told is so that men don't look at your butts and then they break their intention of that prayer. And I'm like, what? And I was a little kid and like maybe like less than 10 thinking like, okay, I thought thinking I was normal, but it's like, is that, I'm sure there's a religious reason behind it, but culturally those are the stories that are being circulated that have been there. And I think back in the day, probably I'm assuming that men were the ones working. So they had to rush out. So they were there and then they would go off to whatever they were doing, the farms or whatever. But the story that's culturally today is because that men won't check out your butt. And it's just like, that's not like as a kid hearing those cues, it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. All right. So l- looking at the time. So yeah. let's let's just go around uh, one by one or just as you feel inspired with an idea. How can women develop their self-worth? Who wants to go first? I'll go first on that one. <laughs> I feel that if we can engage ourselves in deep reflective inquiry, whatever that may be, whether it's coaching, counseling, therapy, inner child therapy, any of those modalities to deeply reflect on what does it take for us to build our self-worth? Because a lot of the times our self-worth was damaged or written uh, or rewritten in some time in the past, in our childhood, memories locked, right? We can go back, unlock those memories whenever that happened, whether it happened in our 30s or 20s or, you know, when we were five years old. We can go back, unlock those memories, be there for ourselves and rewrite our perspective. We don't rewrite what happened, but we can rewrite our perspectives about how we see ourselves because that's what got damaged, right? What is lack of self-worth is we have written a wrong perspective about ourselves. So we can just go back and rewrite our own perspective about ourselves and then self-worth is restored. So we can be the parent or we can be the guardian that we never had in our childhood, go back and help ourselves in that cellular memory at a very deep-rooted level, rather than at a cognitive level, actually at a physical level. And then our self-worth can be restored. And, you know, I'm speaking from personal experience. That's the kind of work that I did. Like no amount of cognitive conversation would have helped me uh, or did help me. So for me, it was like I had to go back and rewrite my uh, rewrite my childhood self at that level. And for me, that worked. So just wanted to share that. Yeah, I would say I love that, Avni. And I, I would say that um, that mine kind of builds on that, that rewriting it, but sort of speaking it aloud. So for me, it's call a thing a thing. Say whatever you need to say aloud. It's almost like positive affirmations, but in real life, in real time, as the stuff is happening. So for me, it may be like, please stop interrupting me. If you'll allow me to finish my thought, you know, that's the third time you've called me so and so. My name is such and such. Or, you know, it kind of feels like you're starting to mansplain, you know, just calling it out and saying it aloud helps me reinforce my own existence and the right to be in that space and think what I think, feel what I feel, and be fully expressed no matter what anybody else thinks. Love that. Love that. Yeah. 
And to add on to those two, because I actually think it's, it's obviously multi, at least for me, multidimensional. And I think there is a component of going back in the past and choosing to look at our history from a different focus lens. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really about having that language that, that Kate talked about. I'm not going to elaborate even further, but even having the courage to speak it up. And the last thing is actually just our bodies, like how we show up, how we move. I know that for me, a big part of getting self-force is actually doing sports. You do sports, you fail, and then you fail. And then eventually you get better and somehow you're much better. And it's a reminder that just like anything in life, we can start from a very small place, no matter how much it is, and we can grow it. And I think once we realize that and we see it in a different area of our life, we think about how can it apply it to my work? How can it apply it to the impact? How can it apply in all these different aspects? And I find them together. They're very powerful. So it's really nice that you you both have shared different points of it. But I look at it as a trifecta of how we show up and how we can actually just become a bigger light that we were actually born to be. Like, I think God created us as all as light. But somehow throughout the time, we've been dimmed down from our choices of perspective, language, as well as what we thought was possible for us. Kathy? I, I love all that you all have said. It's really, really beautiful um, actions we can take. I would suggest really focusing on taking care of ourselves, actually stepping into doing things for ourselves that we might not do otherwise, like taking care of our body, for example. I ask people, as since we're focusing the, on this podcast on women's self-worth, doing things for ourselves that we might not otherwise do. I work with lots of women who, when I ask them, what do you do to take care of you? It's like a blank stare. Like they don't even know what that means. And sometimes I'll say, what What do you mean? Look, take care of me. But they're taking care of everybody else around them. So, you know, have a massage sometime. Um, do something to keep fit. You know, like you're saying, Yasmin, exercise. Eat food that you love. But body is part of it. Our mind, read. One of the things we talked about is we live in a culture that says we are not so valuable. If you read some things, for example, that talks about history where women actually discovered some things, but because they were women, they couldn't be um, given that. And some men took credit for it. And it's in history. It, 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 he, he took credit. She didn't do it. And do some reflections also, self-reflection. So this is working with the mind. Read, there are lots of books to help us to understand ourselves more and do some self-reflections and emotions. Really being able to sit with our emotions, which actually all of you have referred to in this in this podcast, sitting with them and actually noticing, you know, I'm feeling really freaking angry that he has just said this. To sit with them until you really get it, what the emotion is that you're having, and so that you can respond and say something that actually is something that the other person can hear, but is actually saying what is true for you. So that's my suggestion. Take consciously, take care of yourself in all of those areas. Andrea, what is your suggestion? Sort of listening to everybody and and what you've all been saying, I think one of the most important things, and it's one of the themes in my book is external influence. And the amount of goodness as well as damage that can be done by the people around you, the institutions that you grow up in or that you're part of today. And I think what you were saying, Avni, I think we need to create silence in our lives Mm. to be able to go inside and listen to our own inner wisdom. We know the answers to our questions. We know 
we've got to ask we've got to go and identify that we've got problems or that we've got challenges or that we lack self-worth right but we can't do that in this noisy world so we've got to create the silence but then really spend some time looking around at the external influences the mother and father influence the priest or you know your friends the circle of people are around you are they lifting you up are they pushing you down and then the other thing is um if you're sitting in a victim mindset, and I think a lot of people don't like to recognize that they're a victim, if everything is somebody else's fault, then you're sitting in a victim's mindset. And to me, it's a simple thing. Like I, so many people, every time I catch up with them, there's somebody else has done something to them that's causing them harm. But the only consistent thing in that process is them. The victim mindset is a very, very disempowering mindset because you're just giving all your power away to everybody else, really. So mm. that's probably probably one of the areas I'd say focus on. If it's somebody else's fault, you've really got to do some self-reflection because you're in control. If I can add one more thing, it would be get yourself a girl network. Yeah. There is nothing <laughs> like the yeah. support that you get from solid girlfriends, not just anybody, but solid citizens yeah. that will tell you, that will listen to you. And the energy that I that I get from those kind of networks, you know, is supportive like nothing else. It's a different kind of energy that you get from your male friends or from your husband or from every, anywhere else. So that has been magic for me. Yeah. I really want to echo that because we were going through a tunnel recently and my child was asking, why are all tunnels the circle? Okay. And my husband shares the science behind that. And he says that when you have a circle, a circle is the strongest shape there could ever be. Because when there is pressure on a circle, the pressure is then dissipated. It actually goes through the curve. Okay, and it flows through. And that's why a circle is least likely to crush under pressure than perhaps a square would. Right. So let's get a great circle of friends mm -hmm. because a circle makes us strong. So, yeah, I just wanted to really add that. <laughs> that scientific analogy came to my mind as you shared that. Kat. All right. Has anyone got anything that they want to add? Wonderful conversation. Thank yeah, you so thank you. Thank really, you all. Really, really Thank beautiful you. sharing. And yeah. I, hope, I hope it helps everyone out there. And, you know, there's uh, some amazing women here. If you want to reach out through me to get in touch with them, to book appointments or whatever, give me a yell. They're all amazing. And, yeah, we just hope it helps. And we need women to step into their voices, to step into their power, to get this world on track. We really do. Yeah. So, ladies, we can't wait for the men to do it. They've got us where we are. So now we need to lead and get us out <laughs> the other side. <laughs> All right. Yep. <laughs> no pressure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. See you bye all. Bye. See you. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I'm coming.